0: Aloha. On behalf of the Daniel K. Inouye Institute, I am pleased to welcome everyone to this special event. We have enjoyed our partnership with Sokolo, and over the years, we have been live in Honolulu as a way to honor Senator Danny Inouye, who placed great value in being able to share perspectives in a candid and safe space. We are now all in new unchartered virtual territory. And today's discussion is both timely and reflective of these turbulent times. Does a new wave of anti-Asian-American racism require new ways of fighting back? I would like to take this opportunity to dedicate this program to Irene Hirano Inoue, whose tireless work in this space has resulted in great strides for Asian-Americans. She would have been 72 this month and we lost her way too early. But we are grateful for the legacy she has left us and owe it to her to continue the advocacy with a similar passion and determination. Today's panel is moderated by Sue L. Chan of the Los Angeles Times. His career in journalism includes many years at the New York Times and the Washington Post. He is also a member of the Pacific Council for International Policy. Over to you.
1: Hello, and thank you, Jennifer, and thanks to Zocalo Public Square and the Daniel K. Inouye Institute for this opportunity. I'm excited to speak today with our panel as we explore racism against Asian Americans and how we can counter it, and I'm honored to introduce our panelists for this conversation. Joining us today are Senator Maisie Hirono, Cynthia Che, Lan Kurashige, and Karthik Ramakrishnan. Senator Maisie Hirono represents Hawaii in the United States Senate, where she has served since 2013. She is a member of the Democratic Party and is the first Asian American woman elected to the Senate. She previously represented Hawaii in the United States House of Representatives from 2007 to 2013. Cynthia Cha is the co-executive director of Chinese for Affirmative Action, a community-based civil rights organization in San Francisco that is also a co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate, an initiative that tracks anti-Asian American racism. She previously led state, local, and national community organizations working on a range of issues from reproductive justice, gender-based violence, to immigrant and refugee rights, and environmental justice. Lan Kurashige is a historian at the University of Southern California. The topics he studies include racial ideologies, the politics of identity and immigration, and historiography, particularly as it relates to Asians and Asian Americans. He is the author of Two Faces of Exclusion, The Untold History of Anti-Asian Racism in the United States, as well as numerous other books and articles. Finally, Karthik Ramakrishnan is a political scientist and the founding director of the Center for Social Innovation at the University of California, Riverside. He directs the National Asian American Survey and is the founder of aapidata.com, which publishes demographic data and policy research on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. He is the co-author of the forthcoming book, Citizenship Reimagined, a new framework for state rights in the United States. Thank you all for joining this conversation. Uh, We are still trying to get Senator Hirono on the line while we do so. I would like to start by asking Ms. Cha to discuss, uh, lay out the framework of what's going on right now with anti-Asian American uh, violence or hate crimes or other sentiments expressed, particularly in this uh, most tumultuous year.
2: Thank you, Sewell. Um, Well, first I wanna just recognize our partners with Stop API Hate, uh, Russell Jung at Asian American Studies um, Department at SF State and Manju Kulkarni at APCON. Together we established Stop API Hate um, in mid-March because we really wanted to track and understand the nature and magnitude of hate incidents. And we've been very careful to call them hate incidents versus hate crimes Because in fact, a majority of these incidents don't constitute um, uh, within the legal definition of hate crimes. Um, But the thing that I want to say is that um, we've received 2,700 incidents to date from across the country. um, And they come in the form of verbal harassment, discriminatory treatment, and yes, violence. Um, and these are the kinds of incidents that people are experiencing living their daily lives um, and uh, require attention. And so this is something that I think we've been very focused on in terms of, you know, what can we do in response to this um, meteoric rise in anti-Asian racism? And it's very concerning given that we have to look at the causes of it, including the racist rhetoric The policies that the current administration is advancing and all the different ways in which we can't rely, I think, on in traditional um, forms of addressing these issues. So it's a very serious issue that we wanted to be able to document that requires um, our full attention.
1: Uh, That creates a perfect entree to go to Senator Hirono. Uh, Senator, could you tell us a little bit about what the Asian-American lawmakers in our Congress and other Asian-American elected officials are doing to respond to uh, President Trump and other administration officials who've been very, very hard on China, very much calling uh, COVID-19 the Chinese flu or, or using words like Kung flu and other uh, phrases that really, really have kind of uh, contributed already to an, es- to an already escalating U.S.-China uh, tensions?
3: It's good to join all of you not only have we individually raised our voices to, uh, to uh, speak out, I think it's really important for us to speak out against these kinds of uh, racist uh, acts, but we have submitted bills. You know, for example, um, I just recently introduced the Alien Enemies Act, which was enacted in 1798, still there on the books, which President Trump referred to when he did the Muslim ban and which Roosevelt was one of the acts that Roosevelt referred to in doing uh, executive order 9066. So it was that and then Kamala Harris, Tammy Duckworth and I introduced a bill to condemn uh, racist acts against uh, Asian Americans. And I'm sure you know, maybe you don't know that the House recently passed the House version of this bill. And almost 200 Republican House members did not vote for a resolution condemning racist acts and rhetoric and, and speech. Uh, it, it's just amazing. This is where we are. And that's, that's why our work is <laughs> cut out for us and why elections matter. And the good thing is we are in the midst of an election where the choices are clear. I'm not telling anybody who to vote for, but I hope that everyone on this Zoom uh, event, um, I hope people have woke and stay woke.
1: We have choices to make. Senator Hirono, of course, you were the first Asian American woman elected to the United States Senate among so many other milestones. (laughs) It's been joined in that chamber by uh, Tammy Duckworth and of course Kamala Harris. Do you expect the topic of uh, anti-Asian sentiment or xenophobia uh, to come up during tonight's vice presidential debate?
3: I hope that it does in the context of perhaps uh, immigration, anti-immigration fervor and the divisiveness that this administration continues to push out. I hope so, because I do know that immigration is a, uh, an area of commitment for both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. In fact, when Kamala was running for president, she had an entire platform uh, on AAPI programs and changes that we need to make.
1: Professor Kurashige, your historical scholarship goes back in fact to the late uh, 18th century. Uh, you've studied waves of anti-Asian sentiment in the United States. Uh, obviously it's peaked during certain eras, the 1920s, the 1940s. Do you see parallels between say the anti-Japanese sentiment that um, kind of crescendoed in the US in the 30s and 40s and the current uh, kind of anti-Chinese sentiment we're seeing today?
4: Uh, yes, yes, definitely. Um, and. Definitely, every time there's an international conflict, uh, the conflict with Japan and the internment of Japanese Americans is the, is the case, the best case example for Asians, there's gonna be tension regardless of race. You know, when there's uh, we're fighting a different country, a foreign power, the representatives or the citizens from that country in the US, the, the sort of enemy aliens are always subjected to some type of harassment. Um, but what's different is when it's a racial minority, Right. And so for Japanese Americans, the idea is there was, no, there was no such thing as a good Japanese in the war against Japan. Whereas at the same time, the war against Germany, there was a distinction made very clearly in the U.S. between a good German and a Nazi. And so the German immigrants in the U.S. were considered good Germans and trustworthy. And the FBI was able to single out you know, the bad Germans, whereas in the case of the Japanese, because of race, they were all considered bad Japanese and not trustworthy. So certainly there's historical precedent. I wanna say though, now that Senator uh, Hirono is here is that what changes in terms of fighting back historically against this type of racism is having representatives like Senator Hirono. And that changes of course, with the Hawaii representatives when it becomes a state, You first, you have the first time you have these Asian American representatives in Congress. But even before that with the Philippines was a colony in the 20s and 30s when they had non-voting representatives, it made a mm-hmm. difference that they were there fighting Filipino exclusion, fighting these types of anti-Asian policies and, and racial discourse. And so thank you, Senator Hirono and, and all of the others you know, who are fighting the good fight.
3: I agree with you. And particularly in 2018, we saw the election to the US House of a very large diverse group of members, new members, many of them women, and the first time ever we had American uh, Native Americans about time. This is uh, you know, our country, uh, they are the ind- indigenous peoples after all. And so I have often said that racism is never far below the surface in our country and eternal vigilance is required of all of us. And you know that we're in the midst of a, a nomination battle for the Supreme Court and, and the court makes a big difference because the court sustained the, the Executive Order 9066 This court recently sustained the Muslim ban. And and so these are issues that will likely come before uh, the newly constituted court. And uh, I think civil rights, individual rights, uh, uh, obviously a woman's right to choose, uh, various kinds of immigration laws will uh, come before the Supreme Court. So I hope that everyone connects those dots between the kind of decisions that this court and the other uh, federal courts will be making that will impact our lives for decades to come.
4: So can I just add that another important um, representative was Norman Mineta, who I interned Mm -hmm. for as a college Mm -hmm. student. But when he was in the Bush Mm -hmm. administration after 9-11, it mattered. That he was there, and he and and Bush, the President Bush, refers to him as we're not going to make the same mistake we did to to Norm in terms of interning him and his family and all Japanese Americans during World War II, and so we don't see anything like that today in terms of the administration.
5: Although Lon, I would, yeah, I would I would take a little bit of issue there, right? So, under the Bush administration, you had the NSEERS program, which is the National Security Entry Exit Registration System. And that was a program, that was a Muslim ban well before we had this kind of a Muslim ban. Anyone who was a non-citizen from essentially, it looked like Muslim majority countries had to go and register with INS at the time. Mm. They thought that they were gonna use that as a dragnet to identify potential terrorists. It was a massive failure. The architect of that program was Chris Kobach, who has then gone on, and we write about this in our my, one of my previous books, On New Immigration Federalism, Chris Kobach cut his teeth in immigration restriction in the Bush White House as a White House intern. He then went on to draft all sorts of legislation at the state level that were anti-immigrant in so many ways. So I think we have, it's so bad right now, we think things may be slightly better, but for the hundreds of thousands of Muslim immigrants, it was horrible. And I'm glad that, for example, the JACL came out and and condemned it while it was happening. It was very un-American. And it was because of the the law that the Senator talks about that allows for national security reasons for the government to do these kinds of things, right? Korematsu was never overturned. It was just voided for lack of of evidence or false evidence. So I think it's really important for us to to re-examine and make sure that we actually close those massive gaping loopholes in our civil rights framework. So thank you, Carter. I, I, didn't,
4: I didn't mean to absolve the whole Bush administration of <laughs> racism, uh, so, but, but just to kind of talk about the symbolic significance of someone that's like true. Neumannetta. Yeah, Thanks.
3: Well, and even, even as we speak, there is a very large contingency of, of the very anti-immigrant lawmakers in both the US House and the US Senate. They are there, that's why something as one would think uh, should be universally and bipartisan supported like a resolution condemning um, anti-Asian rhetoric, et cetera, would pass, but it did not. And this is why, as I say, uh, racism continues to thrive in our country.
1: Professor Christian, let's stay on the point um, you raised in just a moment ago. What did we learn from the post 9-11 experiences of South Asians, American Muslims, uh, people of Middle Eastern or North African background, does the activity both legal and uh, in terms of, and political from that era, help inform uh, the Asian American community today?
5: Absolutely. So thank you for asking that question. Um, and and this, uh, this is what we, in some ways, I think we were able to trace it. And this is a book with deep glow sacrum called The New Immigration Federalism. And at the time, you know, we called it the rise of ethnic nationalism. I think we would call it something else now, but really what you saw after 9-11 was the normalization of, of, some, of not just nativism, but some of the most kind of virulent aspects of white supremacy that it became mainstream. Um, and, and what you saw over time, yes, you had George W. Bush, who was an immigration moderate, but what we, who we talk about in that book is Tom Tancredo. Tom Tancredo goes from being a pretty marginal figure in the Republican party as a, as a, as a member of the US House from Colorado to really organizing hate within and exclusion within the Republican Party, so that that became dominant. So by the time President Bush, after the 2004 election, introduces wants to introduce immigration reform, the House passes one of the you know a, a very harsh law um, that would actually make immigration undocumented immigration a felony. Anyone who assists them a felony a felon. So that's what you you, you what you're seeing now is. This growth, all the seeds were planted in the post 9-11 period. And what you saw was a mainstreaming of hate. And those are, I mean, it's it's not just about what residents do to each other and shout at each other. You have members of Congress, you have laws that have been passed at the state level in that post 9-11 context in which immigration went from being something that was maybe a civil rights issue or maybe an economic issue it got weaponized as a national security issue, and we're still uh-huh. feeling the strong effect of that. It just has taken on different forms. It is now seen as a different kind of national security threat, and you're seeing the kinds of private acts of violence that are that are that are being uh-huh. informed and inflamed by
1: Senator Hirono, um, President Trump, of course, some of his most powerful uh, and could argue uh, misleading and dangerous messages, have come around immigration and trade. And now, Mm -hmm. of course, with COVID-19, you know, the ratcheting up of U.S.-China tensions, um, Mm -hmm. there's a political dimension, there's also a a racial and domestic dimension. Where do you see this going? And how can can progressives, um, you know, tackle difficult subjects such as immigration, such as, uh, you know, the role of the WHO in kind of managing this uh, international pandemic at an early age, but to discuss them in ways that are you know, sane, lucid, productive, constructive, rather than in the kind of xenophobic and uh, demagogic fashion that uh, President Trump has taken.
3: Well, it would have it would help if we had a lucid, constructive leader. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the the misinformation and disinformation that is rampant on social media is a matter of concern to a lot of us, and uh, I would like to see big tech take much more responsibility for monitoring the content albeit yes they they uh, there is a total disincentive to monitor the content because there's a section in the law that that uh, protects them from all liability but we are looking at what we can do Uh, but big tech knows that they need to to do more to stop the spread of misinformation disinformation especially around COVID around this pandemic and there was a study done recently uh, it was a credible study uh, that showed that a lot of the misinformation about COVID uh, can be attributable, attributable to the president himself. So it was talking about uh, drinking bleach to UV lights to hydroxychloroquine. So much of that is uh, from the president and he retweets everything. So I'm glad that Big Tech recently, I think it might've been uh, either Twitter or YouTube that uh, uh, eliminated um, Uh, QAnon from access to their platforms. But there there needs to be more of that kind of thing because the misinformation, disinformation has just exploded recently. And I think it, it is no coincidence that it's come at a time when so much of this kind of divisiveness and the emergence of white nationalists and hate groups, they were always there, but they seem to be legitimized by this president and this administration and this attorney general.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Ms. Che, tell us a little bit about what the Asian American community is doing to kind of counter this rise in hate incidents.
2: Well, I think first and foremost, um, what we've done is we've, we've come together to organize ourselves um, on multiple fronts. One is um, the fact that we want to connect the dots that it's interpersonal attacks it's the anti-immigrant policies um, it's you know the trifecta of this pandemic the economic crisis that we're in and also in the backdrop of deteriorating US China relations and as Karthik and Lon has pointed out as well as us and in Toronto is that this is a uh, old schools, like centuries old, like racist tactics 101, right? Deflect blame, uh, blame the immigrants and criminalize parts of our community to, you know, placate, you know, everyone's else sense of, um, you know, the the problems that we're facing today. Um, This is an important time for our community to really come together. And it's been this rallying mobilization effort Mm -hmm. But also I think it's been an important conversation about how do we respond to these attacks against our communities in ways that don't contribute to criminalization, recognizing the Black Lives Matter movement and how we're very much a part of that Mm -hmm. struggle as well.
1: Let's stay there for a moment. Um, The Black Lives Um, Matter movement is certainly brought to the very center of American discourse. the legacy of racial injustice. Uh, It's been a very expansive movement, one that also talks about the victimization of indigenous Americans, of immigrant Americans. Has that movement helped to crystallize or um, strengthen a sense of Asian American identity and solidarity Uh, to any of you?
5: So so I'll jump in first on this. Um, I'll say one of the affiliations I have, I'm proud to have, is uh, I'm a board member of the California Endowment. Uh, So I'm entering my fifth year as a board member Uh, And I'm proud that we have centered racial equity in our work for uh, years, if not decades. But even so, I think we were just so inspired to see uh, what was happening, especially this year. Uh, Of course, it's birthed out of some very, very deep uh, traumatic incidents Uh uh, in the black community. Um, It it was inspiring to see uh, various communities, including white communities, right, young white people Uh, Asian-Americans, Pacific Islanders, uh, Latinx people all coming together, uh, just having this really, really strong sense of of, of, uh, outrage and and the sense of just something's just fundamentally wrong, not only in our laws, but even just in so many aspects of our systems. It was really inspiring to see. Um, In terms of what that means for Asian-Americans, I think it's a, a little bit complicated because we see that in the role of philanthropy and nonprofits, we don't wanna get into what some people call oppression Olympics in which we're trying to compare what has happened to us with other people and vice versa, but to really understand how the system more generally works in terms of white nationalism, in terms of white supremacy, in terms of exclusion, and how can we all work together um, to make sure that we overthrow these systems of exclusion and what I feel, I feel really inspired by the work of Black-led organizations in the Inland Empire where I live, Riverside and San Bernardino counties. And I know that by supporting them and their work in dismantling racism, it's gonna benefit so many other communities including Asian American communities. I don't think we can take it for granted but I think it means that we have to, we have to engage in that politics of solidarity because Black people have shown up for Asian Americans time and again. From throughout history, and maybe Lon can speak more about this, from the opposing the Chinese Exclusion Act, paving for the opening of our immigration laws, making sure the civil rights acts and laws apply to us. I think we just owe such a debt of gratitude, and by continuing, I think, to hold tight and, and practice that solidarity, it, it, it's, it's in, it's, it's, it just happens to be in our enlightened self-interest, I think, but it just means that we build better systems and just systems.
3: I think so. It's it's a, an awareness that uh, we are all minorities, we can all be targeted, and that there is a awareness of, uh, as you say, solidarity, need for solidarity. And so organizations such as the OCA and JACL, longstanding civil rights organizations and others uh, realize this. And I think it is really important for all of us to come together because the systemic racism against Blacks in our country, perhaps we're finally at the point where uh, we will seriously recognize this original sin in our country and, uh, and do something that is going to change things. But we have to do it together because there are a lot of other oppressed groups in our country.
4: I'm just, well, I'm just, oh, sorry, Stuart. Can I just jump in on and I, I think it's very inspiring and necessary. Carthage and uh, Senator Ronald are sort of advocating for solidarity. And it's not just Asians, right, who are mm-hmm. showing this type of stepping forward and supporting Black Lives Matters, but it's white people, right? It's it's lots mm-hmm. of groups who are really inspired by this because it's so obvious right. the institutional racism, the long histories, just some complications, right? It's it's when you think back in terms of history, Asians and blacks and other groups don't always unite. And I'm just thinking of Hawaii, like mm-hmm. historically, how say Filipinos and Japanese laborers would go. You know, yes. There was all sorts of tension and conflict, although solidarity as well, but it's very complicated, this whole issue of solidarity. And I think the assumption that there should be because everyone's oppressed by the same white supremacy, that there should be some natural solidarity. I think that's not, not an accurate assumption. I don't think it bears out historically and probably statistically right. in, in Karthik's data, you know. Um, it,
5: it takes a lot of work, absolutely. It's not something you can just assume. And I think this is where um, I think many, the folks on this, uh, uh, on this uh, meeting, but even I think uh, elsewhere, uh, they're doing the important work. One thing I'll say is that it's important to make sure that the work is supported with philanthropy, right? So we just, we just did a report, API data did a report with APIP, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in philanthropy. It shows that we are still getting far less than 1% of all philanthropic dollars in the United States. And other communities of color are also not getting nearly anywhere close to their proportion of the population. And we Mm -hmm. actually know that their needs are even greater. So we have to make sure that to not to romanticize too much the the, the incredible work that's happening because people are doing it on shoestring budgets and especially those are now getting obliterated by the by the economic crisis that we face. So we really need to make sure that we support these groups that are doing this important work uh, through our dollars.
2: Well, thank you, exactly. Go ahead, sorry. If I I, I have to weigh in, because I I think that that does get to the heart of the matter, which is that um, in principle, we know that we need to work together. Because if you think about what's happening in our country, um, white solidarity has been consolidated Um, And that's been led by the the administration and our leadership at the the highest office. Um, This is a moment where um, if you look at the polls, um, Asian Americans, Latinx community members uh, overwhelmingly support the Black Lives Matter movement because there is this shared sense of fate. At the same time, this work is not supported at all it is under-resourced and it requires um, not just statements around solidarity, which I think is very important, but it requires deep work that we need to do Uh within our community to do education about uh, racial hierarchy, colorism, why we are being pitted against each other, that this is all part of the system. And so that work is not something that can be done overnight Especially with our limited English uh, proficient populations. This mm-hmm. is uh, work that will require five, 10 years. Yes. Uh, but this is something that I think we want to um, not squander.
3: Yes, it takes sustained uh, endeavor. And even the, this uh, idea that uh, oppressed groups will somehow decide they should all come together. No, because uh, the dominant culture is very busy dividing and conquering all of us. And that's certainly what happened in the history of the plantation in Hawaii, where all the waves of immigrants came, but the the owners uh, did a lot to divide and conquer, keep the Filipinos away from the Japanese foment, the the divisiveness, and it's only when they determine that there's a a power in numbers. But, uh, you know, this happens in, in terms of the Native American population, for example, and Native Hawaiians, because Native Hawaiians is the only indigenous group that does not have a political relationship yet with the uh, United States. And therefore, the 150 plus laws that have been enacted by Congress for the benefit of Native Hawaiians can all be uh, challenged as being race based and therefore unconstitutional. And you have a Supreme Court justice sitting there in Kavanaugh who believes that. And so there have been efforts by this administration to tell the uh, American Indian population, that, that the the the, the uh, tribes. Well, you know, if you want us to support Native uh, American housing, education, you have to cut off the Native Hawaiians. That happens a lot. So far, uh, everybody has stuck together, but the divide and conquer tactics are fully utilized by people who have that uh, who have very little intention of supporting minority groups. minority
1: minority power. Very powerful. I'm also thinking about Viet Tan Nguyen's uh, recent essays about kind of Asian American identity, about whether Asian Americans will be a force for, you know, uh, upending racial hierarchy, upending uh, our racial subjugation, or instead try to kind of incorporate themselves into whiteness and into the kind of privilege of the nation that that implies. Very powerful observation. We've talked a little bit about philanthropy. We've talked a little bit about Uh, activism. I'm curious about electoral politics now, because we are, of course, in an election year. Uh, Professor Ramakrishan, you know a lot about the Asian American uh, electorate and a lot about Asian American voting behavior. Could you give us a little bit of an overview of what you're seeing, both in terms of uh, everything from partisan identity to uh, first generation versus second and third generation political uh, uh, activism and mobilization, Uh, and then, you know, a little bit more about uh, uh, what you expect to see this fall?
5: Happy to. So one, I'll just, uh... Give a little bit of context and sweep. Um, Asian Americans have what we saw in the last 25 years is a remarkable shift among Asian American voters. So, Asian Americans supported George H.W. Bush in that election against Bill Clinton and Ross Perot, right? But in the course of 20 years, they shifted from being Republican to very strongly Democrat. In fact, uh, you know, uh, tied with Latinos in terms of their support. For Barack Obama in 2012. Why did that shift occur? Part of it occurred because the Democratic Party did a lot of outreach. When we talk about Norm Mineta and others, they came up uh, to leadership in the Clinton administration. Uh, A lot of people ran for office, and so there was a lot of outreach that was done. Post 9-11, with this dynamic of discrimination and hate crimes, the Democratic Party was seen as much more uh, friendly and uh, committed to anti-discrimination Whereas you saw the rise of nativism in the Republican party, a lot of Asian Americans felt turned off and and, and felt pushed away from the Republican party. So that's the kind of longer sweep. So what you see now is that Asian Americans for the most part, tend to support the Democratic party over the Republican party by a two to one ratio. The One exception is with Vietnamese Americans and Mm -hmm. Vietnamese Americans actually supported (laughs) President Obama and even voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 with our post election data, we saw that. President Trump has made inroads in the Vietnamese American community. And when I hear from others about why that's the case, you know, part of it, some of the anti-China rhetoric might actually play well with some of the older Vietnamese American voters. Um, you're also seeing, I mean, it's it's, it's 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 fascinating and puzzling and sometimes even frustrating, I think, for a lot of us who care about immigrant rights, is that President Trump's policies on reducing, almost eliminating the number of refugees coming here. You're actually seeing some amount of support among Vietnamese Americans for the Syrian refugee ban and reducing refugees, the Muslim ban, etc. People might say, how is this possible? Well, part of what's possible, unfortunately, some groups adopt this narrative of the good immigrant and the bad immigrant. Somehow that things were different for them and they don't see how what you're finding today that they were in that exact same situation, you know, 30 years ago. So that's something, or 40 years ago. So that's something that um, that I think is really, uh, that's one place to watch, Uh, but it's uh, among Chinese Americans, this Chinese Americans for Trump phenomenon looked like it was gonna make some headway in 2016. Uh, All of President Trump's rhetoric has cooled off a lot of that enthusiasm he wasn't doing himself any favors by trying to ban WeChat, which is used by a lot of uh, Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans as well. So what you're gonna to see today, uh, i would say to conclude is, 2018 saw record turnout among Asian Americans. Even though President Trump was not on the ballot, he nationalized that election. He also had a lot of congressional races where Asian Americans have a lot of numbers where they made the difference in a lot of those races. So I would expect to see record turnout for Asian Americans in 2020 and largely in favor of uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, a, a, as opposed to Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Tell us a
1: little bit though, I mean, I, it, the situation s- seems quite fluid though. I mean, you could see in 2024, a race between, you know, I don't know, Governor and then Ambassador Nikki Haley of South Carolina. Uh, versus Kamala Harris. Perhaps their right. Hirono will step into the ring. Um, um, and you know, tell us a little bit more about, I mean, it, it does seem quite fluid though. I mean, what, what do you make of these um, uh, electeds uh, like Bobby Jindal, like a Nikki Haley, who you know, managed to be both Asian American, but also you know, quite quite conservative figures in our, in our electoral but landscape. But
5: look at those examples. They're, they are the exception and not the rule. If you look at uh, people who have run for Congress and won Congress, as well as other seats, predominantly Asian Americans have done so under the Democratic banner as opposed to the Republican banner. This is why parties and and, the, and party activists and their rhetoric makes a difference. It is really hard to win as a Republican, in as an Asian American and a Republican. Right, right now, you have to get past the primaries and you have to deal with that toxic stew of what's been <laughs> brewed up in the Republican Party uh-huh. in the last decade. And so, even if you look at someone like Haley and Jindal they had to be quite conservative and really suppress a lot of their identity um, in order to, to make it as far as they do. I hope it changes. I think for the good of our republic, the Republican party has to change. And they tried to do it. After Mitt Romney's defeat, they had that growth and opportunity project. That was a, um, you know, there was a deep examination to say that we need to soften our rhetoric. We need to be more welcoming. Donald Trump proved that you could maybe get one or two more elections where you could throw away that playbook and really double down on hate and really squeeze out as many new voters of people, white voters who weren't voting before. But I think we'll see. Uh, it's hard to predict. You know, I had egg on my face like so many people did in 2016, but I think this is probably the last election where you can get away with that kind of nativism and, and to get away with it. So I think in the future, you. If it is a Haley versus Harris matchup in the future, most Asian-Americans are Democrats, they will support uh, Uh Harris over Haley. Um, But I think hopefully the party will change over time in terms of what it stands for.
1: Senator Hirono, I'm curious if you agree with that. I'm thinking about the Asian-American Republicans who have served. uh, Senator Hayakawa of California, Senator Fong from your home state of Hawaii. (laughs) They were Republicans, albeit during a very different era. What do you make of uh, Professor Ramakrishnan's assessment?
3: The Republican Party is not the Republican Party of Hiram Fong or or Rockefeller or any of those people. The Republican Party is a Trump party. So they they are going to need to do massive rebuilding because their brand is really in the toilet, in my view, and for a good reason. So it, it is a Trump party right now. The important thing for AAPIs is that we are the fastest growing minority population in the country. Um, we need to uh, have a sustained outreach to AAPIs because we can't just reach out to them just because there's a presidential election. It needs to be sustained. I do, uh, I do think that if there is a sustained effort to, to uh, keep, the, keep the AAPIs uh, engaged, they will stay engaged. They will vote Democratic because of the, the Democratic Party is much more aligned with their values and priorities but it has to be sustained. And I think we, we are seeing more signs of that kind of effort. And it is really important when you have more people who look like me running for office and actually getting elected, not just from Hawaii, but from across the country.
1: Now, as a native New Yorker myself, albeit one who now lives in Los Angeles, I'm struck that this call is very much kind of a West Coast and Pacific oriented <laughs> Three of our panelists live in California, Senator Hirono, obviously uh, from Hawaii, um, Senator, um, you represent perhaps the most uh, the state best known for pluralism, the best state best mm-hmm. known for multiculturalism, a state where you know people of color are obviously in the majority and long have been, and also a state that you know again it's known for dynamism. Uh, it's known as the birthplace of President Obama. Do you see in Hawaii kind of certain templates or um, patterns that might eventually uh, uh, reach mm-hmm. us here in the lower 48?
3: Well, one hopes so that people can look to Hawaii as a place where we are not uh, afraid of diversity, where there is no racial group that has the majority. That has a lot to do with uh, the historical coming together of people of many different races. There's a lot of intermarriage. And in fact, a, a large percentage of the people of Hawaii uh, identify themselves as multiracial. I think that is a, a huge factor in our celebration of uh, of diversity. And I think that we, you know, my belief is that everybody should marry outside of their race. <laughs> That's one way to promote <laughs> racial harmony and uh, understanding. <laughs> so I kind of went there because my husband is half Korean. So, you know, <laughs> but I think Hawaii has there uh, so there's some lessons to be learned from a place like Hawaii. And I think it also helps to have, and not, not just helps, uh, the, the indigenous culture, the native Hawaiian culture is a huge part of the 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 way that we view each other and we use many Hawaiian words to to identify how we feel about each other such as ohana which is a word that says we care not just about our immediate family but outside of our our family and and there are there are many words like that which describes the uh, the the way we should treat, treat each other But of course, like any any place, we're not perfect, not by a long shot, but I'm very happy to, uh, I'm gratified and honored to represent a state like Hawaii.
1: Really, really interesting. Um, I'm starting to see some questions from audience members. So if you don't mind, uh, let's let's turn our attention there. Um, I'd like to turn, yeah, to ask a few, uh, turn now to a few questions from our audience. For those watching, if you have a question, you can submit it to the live chat window on YouTube. Our first uh, question is, um, how are Asian American community organizations working with other affinity groups to build broad political coalitions that support civil and human rights for all? Um, Ms. Chad, do you wanna take that?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I think this, this is the work that we have been building. And I think um, it's been long recognized, for example, our organization, uh, was inspired by the Black Civil Rights Movement. Our founders um, borrowed many of the tactics um, mm-hmm. in terms of protest and advocacy work, and so that's the work that we have built upon. And we've always done our work in coalition, um, including around you know education. Uh, so Lau v. Nichols, you know, was a landmark case that really ensured that. Um, Uh, English language learners um, would have quality education, and that benefited other language minorities, not just Chinese Americans. So the work that we do and many other organizations that we work with benefits our democracy, our multiracial democracy, and that's always been an important lesson in terms of the work and issues that we take on, including language rights, advancing racial justice, and economic justice.
1: Professor Kurashiga, could you speak to that question of building broad political coalitions as well? I'm thinking living here in Los Angeles about the role that the Japanese American uh, community and the Japanese American National Museum in particular play in really kind of centering a civil liberties discussion in America.
4: Yeah, I think um, certainly they've learned lessons from when the internment happened. You know, there, there were no supporters, there were no allies. They didn't have a long tradition of building sort of racial coalitions and It was a very different time. It was pre-civil rights movement, right? And so during the Civil rights movement, Japanese Americans and other Asian Americans, especially led by the JACL, um, were, were very active in that organization. They don't get a lot of credit for it, but they were marching. They were part of the protest. They were sympathetic, certainly, and they were pushing legislation, those people who were in Congress or the, you know at the time. So I think, I think you know they're building on that. On those lessons learned from the civil rights movement too through the Japanese American National Museum and many other JCL, um, you know, reaching out very broadly. And not just around race, but around religion, around sexuality, around many, many issues that are important.
5: So if I can add to this, I think we need to we can't take even that for granted because if you look at Asian Americans, most of the growth in the Asian American community happens because of immigration. So you have so I mean, this was part of the issue with the census. You had so many Asian Americans who had never experienced a census before, and it took a lot of education, right, to inform them about what this is, how their rights are protected, et cetera. We can't just rely on the civil rights, our civil rights coalitions, to assume that with the new generation, and we've seen this with the Chinese immigrant community, and now with the Indian immigrant community too, um, that we need to constantly do the work of education and, and history. And this is for other communities too. We need to learn about the history of race in America. Everyone else needs to also learn about the history of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in America. I just did a session earlier today that had nonprofit leaders in our region and we're doing a, a, a diversity equity and inclusion <laughs> training, something that President Trump re- just recently said is, is un, unpatriotic for whatever reason. There can be nothing more patriotic to actually learn history, to learn our history with all of its accuracy and to really okay. deeply understand um, how our communities, how our faiths are intertwined and also how people in our past have advanced the work uh, of, of racial equity, of racial justice so that we can draw inspiration and do the same moving forward.
3: I really commend all the civil rights and uh, social activist organization in our communities because uh, they are very much under-resourced However, if you have people in Congress who understand the importance of uh, this kind of work and it, literally in the trenches with the uh, language barriers to overcome all of that, that's really important. Uh, and you know, comprehensive immigration reform, I hope will be on the agenda of a new administration because we need it. And that immigration bill should continue to have family unity as a guiding principle, which it was not In the 2013 comprehensive immigration reform bill and as the only immigrant serving in the united states senate um you know this is a they call this sort of these gang of eight they just sort of self-select there were no women in this gang of eight they came up with what they thought was a really good bill and we worked off that but they made a pact that that all eight of them four democrats four republicans would um vote as a group on any substantive changes to the immigration law so when i for, on their bill. So when I tried to push forth an amendment that would promote some level of family unity, uh, it, I know it, it really pained both Dick Durbin and Chuck Schumer who were on that committee and part of the Gang of Eight to vote against those, that amendment. But uh, you need people who recognize the importance of the work that you all are doing and to support, by the way, the you know the minority granting institutions and all of that higher education, everything else. And there's so much work to be done after this administration. So much rebuilding, so much recognition of what we need to do to bring our country together in this most divisive uh, period. That uh, there's work for all of us. So <laughs> <laughs> this is no time to be sitting on our coals, as we put it. <laughs>
1: Senator, I am so struck that you're the only uh, immigrant in the United States Senate. That is just a remarkable fact. I mean, you uh, you really really voice and voice and power to so many. Um, a question from our audience uh, that's I, I'm struck by its power. Um, how does it make you feel when the president uses language like "China virus"?
3: Oh, of course, it's par for the course with this president, sadly. But I never, uh, you know, it's, it's um, how do, you, how do you maintain the sense of outrage? You have to maintain it. You can't, this can't be the new norm that you have a president, everything coming out of his mouth, every other word is a lie. So I think it is really important for us to remain outraged, but to channel that outrage into uh, the, the kind of people who will get elected, who will make a difference. And as I say, they, they, the thing that, that really supports me is what's going on in the house. and the number of people who got elected there. The Senate is a very different animal. It takes a lot to get elected to the Senate. Nobody hands us anything. And that is why I would like to see more first generation, people not born in this country, be able to make it to the U.S. Senate. I'm just glad that I now have uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, the first Hispanic woman. I have Kamala Harris, the first uh, Indian a uh, half Indian person, and of course, um, uh, Tammy Duckworth, because I was pretty feeling pretty lonely there for a while.
1: <laughs> I, my only, if I could express an opinion, my only wish would be to change the uh, constitutional uh, eligibility
3: <laughs> so that
1: you could seek it just as uh, uh, pioneers like uh, Patsy Mink and Shirley Chisholm did. Um, uh, Ms. Che, on the que- uh, let's stick with that question for a moment. Uh, Ms. Che, you work a lot with the Chinese American community, which is itself very heterogeneous. How does it make, Uh, you feel, or how does it make the people you work with feel when the president uses language like uh, like China virus or Kung flu?
2: Well, for us, uh, we often say that words matter, and in in our own data, what we saw when we took a deeper dive on what people were saying as they were attacking Asian Americans living their daily lives as essential Mm -hmm. workers, as healthcare workers. Um, was that type of racist rhetoric. And they were mimicking the president of the United States, giving him license. So how it makes me feel is outrage that the president of the United States is um, essentially giving license to uh, people to attack Asians. Um, And I think we're not surprised, he's called Mexican rapists, he's called people terrorists um, he said that people come from, you know, shithole countries. Am I allowed to say this? I, I wasn't, I didn't sure. have <laughs> um, This is part and parcel to what the president is doing. Um, he is sending a message that only certain people belong here, um, have the right to be here. And um, again, he's consolidating, um, I think, his, his base or who he thinks his base is and it's irresponsible, and I'll say it again, it's endangering uh, the lives of Asian Americans, and we should all be concerned about that. Yes.
1: Thank you. Uh, Professor Ramakrishnan. a question for you. To what extent is data disaggregation important to better understanding the impact of racism across various Asian American subgroups? Now, the questioner didn't say this, but I I might add, it's we're a very, very heterogeneous population. The challenges facing perhaps among uh, refugee, very, very different may be very different from those facing a Taiwanese American or Mm -hmm. Pakistani American professional. Uh, To what extent does the data disaggregation help us better understand the nuances and contours of various Asian American subgroups?
5: Data disaggregation is essential. Uh, As uh, my colleagues, uh, Jennifer Lee and Jenna Wong and I wrote, uh, you know, it is a civil rights issue for Asian Americans. Without accurate data, we don't know uh, how the problem might affect different communities differently. Part of the reason why data disaggregation is so important, remember, so Asian Americans are the only racial group that are majority foreign born. There's a lot of language needs. You won't even know that you, you know, the kinds of needs and services that you need to offer without being able to disaggregate. Mm -hmm. We also do a lot of public opinion data. This doesn't mean that just because you disaggregate, it means that these groups have nothing in common. You actually need to collect the data to see what are the circumstances in which there is commonality or solidarity What are the circumstances in which there are differences of opinion or circumstance? We need to have that full view of what that looks like so that we don't fall into stereotype or assumptions. We need to have evidence drive our decision-making. As a public policy professor, that is one of the things that I'm hopeful for. Regardless of whatever party you prefer, I really Mm -hmm. hope we can get back to an evidence-based reality and public policy that is based on research and sound decision-making.
3: Yes. So, I've actually tried to push, especially the Department of Education and Health and Human Services, because in the education and healthcare areas, disaggregated data is really important to enable us to understand what's going on uh, within our uh, Asian communities. But uh, let's face it, the Republicans don't, don't like that idea. <laughs> so, we just, I, I just keep right. pushing.
4: <laughs> and then you didn't even mention when you talk about disaggregation. You didn't even mention Pacific Islanders, which I know is oh, yes.
3: aware of as well. Well, we finally how. got Hawaiians as a separate group on the census. That took a long time to do. Yes,
5: well, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's there's disaggregation within the Asian American community. First of all, it's important I think for uh, for uh, viewers to know that Pacific Islander is a separate Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders is a separate racial category, and that was there was a big mobilization because. When you mm-hmm. lump it all together, you have a group that not only has a distinct history and a distinct sense of identity, but socioeconomic outcomes and health outcomes that yes. are far different, usually far, far worse yes. than the Asian American average. So that was important to oh, yes. right? But even within the Pacific Islander category, big differences between native Hawaiians and Samoans and Tongans, and it's really important whenever mm-hmm. possible, including in our health data. And I think we're seeing this now a lot of our public health systems unfortunately do not disaggregate Asian and Pacific Islander health data. So no. we just have a very dim understanding of how COVID-19 is playing out in our communities. Mm-hmm. We generally have a sense that when you're talking about Filipinos and health professions, that they're at risk, right? Or other populations that are essential workers in particular places, like the Hmong population in the Central Valley, for example, that if mm-hmm. we had disaggregated data, we would have a much more accurate view of how different Asian and Pacific Islander communities are affected by COVID-19?
3: Well, I just have to add one group that um, I've been trying to enable them to qualify for Medicaid and that is the COFA Citizens Compact of Freely Associated States. So many of the uh, people from Micronesia, Marshall, Marshall Islands, Palau, uh, many of them work in, uh, in our country. They can come to our country without visas because of the compacts we have that enables us to militarily use their countries. So um, they get to come to our country, but they cannot, uh, they, they are not qualified under Medicaid. And many of them work in the meat packing plants, for example. And it's the one place that Trump actually used his, uh, uh, what is it, the, uh, the manufacturing power that he has. To, he forced the meat packing plants to, the Defense Production Act, uh, to force meat packing plants to stay open without adequate safety uh, provisions. But there are a lot of people from the compact nations who are working in these, these plants as essential workers and I'll be trying to get them to be covered. But do you know why it's been really hard? Because anything that smacks sounds like immigration, although I tell them these are not immigrants, they get to come to our country without visas at all. Anything that sounds like immigration, Republicans will kill. That's how bad it is. That's how how the anti-immigrant fervor plays out in both the House and the Senate. Um, uh,
1: An audience question for Ms. Che. Uh, Here in California, of course, we have a ballot proposition measure, Prop 16, uh, that faces Californians in just a few weeks. It would repeal Prop 209, which law restricted the use of affirmative action and racial Mm -hmm. preferences. Um, Can you elaborate a little bit on uh, your organization and on how Affirmative Action benefits AAPI communities?
2: Absolutely. Well, we're really proud to be one of the the co-leads of the Opportunities for All campaign. Um, Obviously, in our name, we have uh, supported uh, essentially affirmative steps to address historic racial disparities. And obviously, hopefully the audience will recognize that um, there is structural racism and sexism. And this proposition would um, essentially allow for us to consider race and gender amongst decision-making with regard to education and economic resources. This is something that we have to do if we are going to address these historic disparities. And Asian Americans absolutely benefit Uh, from affirmative policies. If you look at our UC systems, for example, when affirmative action was banned nearly 25 years ago, Asian American enrollment declined. Whereas other universities that did consider race, uh, there was an increase in enrollment. So we have to look at the data. We have to look at the fact that uh, minority owned businesses, including Asian American businesses, did not benefit from government contracts. Um, And we believe the main reason for that is because they weren't allowed to consider race. So yes, on Proposition 16, and yes, on affirmative policies that really will equal uh, or level the playing field.
1: I wish we could go on for many more hours. (laughs) Uh, We're we're getting to the end. I'd like to ask each of our four distinguished speakers uh, to offer some closing remarks. Uh, perhaps you could you could frame your responses around the question, you know, in this most momentous and historic election year. Uh, what would you like uh, audience members, whether they're Asian American or not, to uh, to take away from this discussion and to think about as uh, we face these immense oh. challenges? Why don't we start with Professor kurishige
4: I think it's just that uh, racism against Asians is real. People deny it. They they don't think that. They think Asians are this these successful mono minorities and they don't have problems, but this has been a long historical trend ever since they first started coming To the country in the mid 19th mm-hmm. century and it hasn't you know it's changes, of course, history changes and maybe the degree of it has changed. And it ebbs and flows, but certainly this whole crisis current crisis shows that it doesn't go away and it, it probably will never go away. Is Che?
2: Well, I think the, the biggest takeaway that I hope your audience um, um, absorbs is the fact that this is not new to Asian Americans. This has actually been um, our experience um, in terms of if you look at our immigration policies, um, the denial of equal opportunity, and that we are actually a part of this multiracial democracy and we've contributed We've been a part of advance, making the advancements that we see today. And we absolutely see ourselves uh, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's inextricably connected to um, our ability to address the racism against us. And it's something that we truly believe we're in this. Again, if I had a dollar for saying this unprecedented moment, it really is our time to seize, um, mm-hmm. to really get at the root causes of discrimination in this country. Yes, Professor,
1: Professor Ramakrishnan.
5: Well, I want to say that you know we I mean, here here we are less than a month away from probably the most consequential election of our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. I think that we should not repeat some of the mistakes of the past. We should not assume just by electing someone as president and vice president that there's somehow magic is going to happen. <laughs> magic is not going to happen. We need to continue to be there to keep pushing, holding uh, even our friends and allies accountable uh, in in the important work that needs to be done. And then importantly, not to think that all of the solutions are only gonna be in Washington DC. This is part of the work. (laughs) So much has gotten eroded away on rights at the state level, including on reproductive rights, including on immigrant rights, including on voting rights, including on civil rights more generally. We have to invest, we have to, remember that we have to continue fighting and not just in terms of what's going on D.C. It's both and. We have to keep pushing at the state level.
3: Yeah,
1: Senator, final word for you. <laughs> Please take as much time as you need. You're in the midst of so much, <laughs> including, including the upcoming confirmation hearings uh, for Judge uh, uh, Coney Barrett, uh, for, on which you've been a very, very outspoken voice.
3: There are three life lessons that covers a lot of the work that we Each can do the first life lesson is that one person can make a difference. And my mother totally changed my life by bringing me to this country from a very rural part of Japan. The second life lesson is half the battle is showing up. So the four of us and you showed up, but it's not just showing up physically, but staying the course. Know it took a long time for civil rights legislation to be enacted. It takes a long time for things to get done. So half the battle is showing up. The other, the third life lesson is that we have to get out of our comfort zones. And, and this is the most consequential election. So all the people who are joining us, you know, think of one more thing that you can do than what you're doing right now and do something that's uncomfortable, but that's going uh, to change something for the better. Get out of your comfort zones. And I don't mean that everybody should run for office because that's really kind of strange, but in, well, when I first <laughs> ran, it was kind of strange. Thankfully, not so much now, but really uh, for each of us to know that we can make a difference. And uh, I, I really believe that as uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we, we each can be great, I'm paraphrasing, if we define greatness as doing something, something that will make somebody else's life a little bit better, we can all be great. So those are the words that I live by, I try to live by.
1: What an inspiring note to end on. What an inspiring (laughs) note to end on. We have to end here for today. But we'd like to thank all of you once again Cynthia Che, Karthik Ramakrishnan, Lan Kurashige, and Senator Maisie Hirono for sharing your insights with us. This has been an excellent and provocative conversation. This video will remain at ZocaloPublicSquare.org and on the Zocalo podcast. Zocalo also publishes a summary of the discussion and short interviews with everyone on the panel, which you'll be able to read by tomorrow. You can also find many other articles and essays at the Zocalo Public Square website. Once again, we would also like to thank the Daniel K. Inouye Institute, which co-presented tonight's conversation in memory of Irene Hirano Inouye. Mm -hmm. And to everyone watching live online, thank you for your questions. We hope this sparks many more conversations. Thank you.
3: Aloha.